All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science, this, in, science in between. Yes, it is. This is Scott, and this is Ollie. Yeah, mm-hmm. look at us. Mm-hmm. Look at us. We both, we both showed up today. Woo. We did. We are here, and it's exciting to be here. It is yeah. exciting to be here. So I'll set this up because this was, you know, we've been talking about, you know, different topics for different shows. And and I said, hey, you know, we should probably spend some time talking about research because we had done this, you know, a couple seasons ago where we talked about research and we we're like, oh, well, how how should we like pick what research? Like, yeah, I guess we did this at the year end or, you know, maybe a few episodes ago where we talked about the the research that was published or the research that was highlighted on Ed Week, right? These were like yeah. the top articles of 2023 and yeah. And I'm like, well, we should go to like one of these science journals and just to look at what are like like the quote unquote most popular ones, right? Mm. And and so I went to JARS, which is the Journal of Research and Science Teaching, and and I said, okay, what is the most cited article on it? So I, they actually have this information on the website, and they have a list of the most cited articles based on citations published in the last three years. Okay, so these are articles. Right. That, so the articles that have been published in the last three years, what articles are they citing? Right. So of the articles that appeared in some journal over the last three years, so 2021 through 2024, mm-hmm. like what are what are they like, citing? What are they citing from all time? Like all time from Jarst, right? From all times. All time. And so so it's not like, hey, this is brand new research. This is stuff that matters to people right now. Right. Correct. Correct. And so, top of the list is somebody who's a friend of yours, who friend I've had mine. that friend of the show, friend of the show, somebody. Oh, I've had the pleasure of meeting, you yep. know, and having dinner with, and what a cool person she is. Yep. It, the All article true. is understanding the science experiences of successful women of color, science identity as an analytic lens. This mm-hmm. was written by Heidi Carlone and mm-hmm. Angela Johnson. Yep. And so props to them. I actually mm-hmm. looked it up. It was like, it's been cited like, oh, I think all time, like 2,500 times, 3,000 times. It's like. Yep. Pretty solid work there. Yes. Yes. Very cool. And yep. so just to kind of set it up, I guess this is like what, just to kind of say what they did. All right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, primary data, uh, they, they looked at 15 successful women of color over the course of their undergraduate and graduate studies in science and into their science-related careers. Primary data included ethnographic interviews during students' undergraduate careers and follow-up interviews six years later and ongoing member checks. So what they did was this was a, like, a, like a really you know, long-term you know, engagement with these 15 women of color. And, uh, you know, as they were undergraduates studying science and then following up later. And so, like, this is a longitudinal study where they really got to work with these folks and, like, understand how they navigated their careers as as women of science. Yep. Yeah. And and I think. So just to to jump up a little bit of a level and to say, yeah, so what they were trying to investigate is, um, you know, we we have this underrepresentation of folks. In sure. this case, they're looking at women of color in science. And what are the reasons that's happening? And we all sort of nod our head and say, oh, yeah, we know why it's happening. It's because X and Y and Z. And here's here's the reasons. But they really wanted to figure out based on this construct of identity, which we're probably going to have to talk a lot about because that's a big sure. beast. Oh, it is a huge part of this article. Identity right. is a huge part. 
Yeah, and just historically, what a difficult thing that is to to grapple with. But but they wanted to use that as a as a way to understand this problem. So that the investigation is really of, um, you know, how does identity, whatever that means, and part of what they're trying to do is define what that means. How does that impact um, women of color's experiences in in science and as science people? Um, and, and what can that help us better understand about how we organize science learning for people of color, women of color specifically, um, to improve the metrics there to get, get more women of color into science. Yeah. The, the identity lens, that piece, you know, that really fits into, you know, we've talked about the community of practice and sociocultural stuff, you know, I would say to some folks, they're probably tired of hearing of it, but I would say we don't talk about identity that often, right? We, we, and I think that's a, that's a pretty important part of this, uh, especially talking about, you know, not only how it relates to this study, but just in terms of how it relates to learners in classrooms, right? Because as they, as folks navigate through, you know, whatever practice they are, whatever community of practice they're engaging with, um, they're, identity is constantly in flux and changing and it's based on how they participate and how they see themselves and how others see them. And so that sort of all kind of captures together this, you know, really complex construct of identity. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the key things there that you said that I want to really call attention to is, you know, traditionally from psychology, you would think of, Identity is be some being something that's internal to you. Like I have my identity. I am this kind of person. And I think one of the critical pieces that they're looking at that they're they're trying to construct a model of is that identity is not just the stories we tell about ourselves, but also the stories that other people tell about us. In other words, right. how we are recognized in the community. And they use recognition. They You're really pull out huge. recognition and recognition and is like it and really yeah, try to characterize it. That is the I, that's the takeaway for me is the recognition piece is how yeah. others recognize them and how these folks themselves feel recognized or not. Right. Right. right, right. How they internalize and, that recognition. Right. And I think this is this is a critical. I'm gonna you know read some parts I highlighted. Um, you know. It says, if we view science as a community of practice, and they cite, you know, Leif and Wenger and Wenger, it says, into sure. which aspiring members must be enculturated, it is essential that we understand how neophytes affiliate with, become alienated from, and or negotiate the cultural norms within the communities. Yeah. And so I think that's a really great way of seeing, you know, identity as it's captured. It's like, okay, these folks are going through their work, and it's like, how are they able to engage with these members you know, these members of the community of practice, you know, whether it's, I mean, in this situation, it's, you know, people of science, like they're mm-hmm. trying to, you know, enter in a career of science. And in some cases, like researchers, yeah. uh, you know, they want to be researchers and, um, and how they, how that piece of recognition, I think is the big takeaway. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure it is. And, and I think the, the important thing to see there is that that is, um, that is a sociocultural component of identity like that. One of the things that they're they're trying to understand here is identity as a social construct, not as a 
as something that you can measure about an individual based on giving them an instrument about their identity, but something that is socially constructed and constantly being reconstructed. Um, and then, you know, Heidi went on after this to, to study this in middle school and, and, you know, school age kids. So she's, oh, yeah. she, so she's doing this work with, this is all with, you know, undergrads and people who are going into science careers, um, graduate students, and then, you know, postgraduate, but studying that same construct of science identity, how do we help? And this is, I think, where to, you and I care more about it is absolutely how does it help? kids construct an identity of I'm a science person, because that is so important if we want to diversify our, our, any of our areas, but particularly in science. Yeah. So drawing on another part of this, she, uh, they quote uh, an article by Lewis and they say, here's the quote, and we could put some of these in, in the show notes if, if folks are interested. Uh, science career attainment is a social process. And the desire of an aspirant is only one factor in this process. An aspiring scientist relies on the judgment and invitation of practicing scientists throughout every phase of the educational and career process. And so that's the setup. That's the setup for, okay, this is why we're talking about identity. And they throw a model. They introduce a model of uh, science identity that involves these three aspects, competence, performance, and the critical part, recognition. Mm-hmm. Yep. So exactly. only two of those are things that like a person can control. Like they can control competence. They can study. They can work. They can get out there and try to, you know, broaden their skill set and learn more stuff. Performance. They can, you know, participate in lots of ways. But the recognition piece is the part that is the. It relies on the social interactions with others. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think, you know, the the thing that they then almost immediately talk about is what the nat- the current nature of science as a culture is. And so uh, I, I got some here that I highlighted that I want to read, too. So, um, you know, she's talking about, you know, the culture of of science, cultural production specifically and what that means. And she says the cultural practices, she's talking about weed out courses, which are a classic science thing, right? Right. It's like, for those who don't know, it's like, okay, that course is a weed out course, which means that the intention of it is to give low grades to to people. Who don't belong. Subset of people who do not belong, who need to not be there, who need to be weeded out of the culture. They need to not be part of our culture, whatever our culture is. So she says the culture, or they say, sorry, the cultural practices of weed out course perpetuate powerful, historical, enduring meanings of science people. For example, students are spectators in class, exams are graded on a curve, and the professor teaches a standardized curriculum that may seem irrelevant. Yet different cultural practices might promote more inclusive meanings of science people. So for me, that's sort of the central thesis of this, which is like if if we want to change who is participating in science, we have to change the culture, especially of school science and undergraduate science. Yeah. I mean, we, every, I think every college of science, you know, there are folks who have still have this perspective, right? They still have, right. And I know um, I have some folks who work at other institutions, not just here, who 
you know, when they try to do things that to engage students differently or try to, you know, introduce active learning or try to introduce ways where, you know, um, I have a colleague who is was working on some flipped classroom stuff in an organic chemistry class because mm-hmm. he was like, okay, that gives us some opportunity to, you know, if they're learning stuff outside of the class, when they come into class, we can work on problem sets, we can apply this stuff. And the students were like doing really well. And the colleagues were like, you need to increase the rigor because you're giving out right. too many A's. Yeah, the grades are going up. And he's like, well, they're learning the stuff to the standard I want them to do it. Yeah. And they're like, well, you know. No, yeah. That can't possibly be the case because, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, this is, I mean, we've talked about this in various places. But sure. but just the premise of a curve and specifically that a curve is set within a particular class. So if you and I are, Ollie and I are teaching two sections of intro chemistry and we're going to curve both of our sets of grades. Well, what that means is that your grade is dependent on the mean score and the standard deviation of the scores in the class that I'm in, which means if Ollie's in a class where a bunch of kids raw scores on the exam are low and Ollie's is right in the middle that means he's going to get a really good grade. But if I have the same exact raw score as Ollie and I'm in a class that has a bunch of kids that have a much higher raw score. Now for the same raw score on the test, I get a lower grade just because I'm in the 10 o'clock class instead of the 8 a.m. class or whatever it is. Like that's the madness of this. It is madness. And I, I think I've mentioned just a few minutes, a few episodes ago about how, you know, that's basically how I, I like got a degree in physics is just being a little bit better than the curve. Right. 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 <laughs> all I well, do. Like, yeah. I just remember like, like the, like the first semester or second semester in, as a physics major, like the curve, there was, the curve was a zero on an exam, like yeah. literally a zero yeah. that made my, that my, the mean, you mean that it, it was the mean. Right. Right. And <clears throat> Because he, the the professor had done some wacky, you know, uh, negative scoring thing where you could get a negative score, and I was like, a zero? Yeah. Well, because there was like there are people who got negative scores. Like, how do you get a negative score on an exam? I have no idea. Like, but in this class, you know, it was grade out of fifteen. Right. Well, and then of course (laughs) it it says, and I think this is one of their points too, and a point that we've made is, well, who decides? A what the scores mean and be what right. the curve is. And the answer is, well, the people who currently have control of the culture of in that community. So that means the current group of chemists or physicists or biologists or whoever's doing that work. And so now you understand how it is that once a group is in control of a culture, how easy it is to maintain, because you just say, well, we're the standard. So we're going to set the standard at us and then anybody else trying to get in has to be like us to get in because we've set the standard to be us. So it, you know, this self-perpetuating culture is really, it becomes really clear how this happens. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, these researchers bring a new lens to this is that they're saying, okay, this recognition by others is really impacted by, you know, not just, your own competence, not just your own ability to perform, but how other people see and that other people see you or other people see someone. Um, And they write, they say, our science identity model, this is the model they're proposing, uh, is based on an assumption that one's gender, 
racial and ethnic identities affect one science identity. A connection hints that, but not made explicit in previous literature. Right. And so it's like, okay, these are these are elements that impact how your science identity because this impacts how other people may see you. Yeah, which you know, twenty years later ish. That seems incredibly obvious. Sure. Right. <laughs> right. But that, in like, 2007, the, this is like groundbreaking uh, stuff. I guess. Right. And it is obviously because it's cited and it's but it just seems so perplexing that we would think like it actually matters if you're a person of color, if you're a black woman, it actually matters in terms of how you get recognized and recognition actually matters. It's not just a. a um superficial sense of oh you look like a scientist like we did a lot of that in science ed where we'd ask kids to draw pictures of a scientist oh, a sci- yeah. and they'd always draw some version of of it would Einstein. be they'd be drawing you and me yeah or i well they draw yeah, you yeah. or me crazy hair in a lab coat right. usually beakers in front of them though einstein didn't use beakers but you know that whole like or drawing math problems or something right so this idea of like do you look like a scientist? But that's not what they're saying. They're not talking about looking like a scientist. Right. They're talking about being recognized. Nice. And that, yes. that has a much more meaningful uh, concept here. It is, it's much more mean, meaningful than just looking like one. Being recognized, which is to say the community of scientists recognize you, call you a legitimate member. And that's, that is a profound difference. So – what they so we're we're talking about the identity piece, and I think that that is great. But I think that we the the other part we have to talk about is the findings that mm-hmm. they. I mean, they so they propose this model. It's it's research based, and they use that as a a lens to view these fifteen women of color who are scientists, yeah. and um and they they found that the trajectories of these women, uh, followed one of three patterns, mm-hmm. so. There was the folks who uh, were research scientists. Mm -hmm. There was another trajectory that were altruistic scientists. And the third trajectory was disrupted scientist. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So go ahead. Okay. So the, and this is from, this is from the abstract. So, you know, this is kind of like jump into the, like the mm-hmm. point. So it says the women of, with research scientist identities were passionate about science and recognized themselves and were recognized by science faculty as science people. The women with altruistic scientist identities regarded science as a vehicle for altruism and created innovative meanings of science recognition by others and women of science, uh, women of color in science. Yeah. So that's the altruistic perspective. The women with disrupted scientist identities sought but did not often receive recognition by meaningful scientific others. Although they were ultimately successful, their trajectories would have been more were more difficult because, in part, their bids for recognition were disrupted by the interaction with gendered, ethnic, and racial factors. Yep. So the disruption piece, I think, is the the part that is the the big takeaway. These people had the competence, they had the performance. But that recognition really uh, disrupted their trajectory as scientists. Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, they talk, they, we can talk more about those three categories. <clears throat> but the first one, this research scientist, one of the key things is that they mention is women who form research science identities, which arguably is the goal, right? I mean, if, sure. we, if we want these folks in one of those categories, we want 
we want at least more people to have the opportunity to be research scientists. So the women who formed research science identities were able to locate professors who recognize, there's that word again, who recognize them as capable science students and gave them access to relevant scientific activities. So from our point of view, like that's the money in that that's what we talk about all the time. Like this is how we need to change schooling both at K-12 and in higher ed, which is to provide students opportunity to be recognized as capable science students and to give them access to relevant scientific activities. That's the science and engineering practices. This, this is why we're always on about this, right? right? Is you've got to give students access to those practices and then in the process of engaging in those practices, recognize them as capable. Those two things going together are the core of what allows somebody to develop an identity as a researcher in this case, or just a science person in general in K-12. I think the critical piece for this that we have to remember is that our views of self are not based on our own perspectives of ourself. Well, only on that. Only, right. They're right. not only based on that. They're based on our interactions with other people. And so in this case, there these women of science, women of color, were interacting with others and sometimes not getting recognized as as being a person of science. And so they have to say, okay, either I'm wrong or they're wrong. Right. In a lot of cases, these folks were like, I, I, I guess I'm not a scientist. Right. Well, that's the natural assumption, especially <clears throat> if you're getting that message from multiple members of the community. Right? right. Because if everyone's saying that you're not really a science person, and of course, they're not saying that to be clear, they're not saying that literally. Right. They're saying right. they're implying that by the way they give you access or don't to activity. Right. It'd be, it'd be like being invited to a, join a research group, invited to right. you know work on a paper, being invited to you know hey like we're going to this conference or whatever. Right. Do they're a presentation not, together. Do that presentation or hey let's highlight this person or award a scholarship or you know yep. there's so many opportunities for recognition mm -hmm. and if if that is communicating to somebody hey you're not a person of science then that mm -hmm. person has to go and say okay maybe i'm not a person of science yeah yeah i mean it, it and another way to think about this you know if we think about this in racial terms which they're clearly you know advocating for as well is like this is so this is sort of the definition of what a microaggression is, right? Which is a microaggression is a small thing that you right. and and maybe even the person that is receiving it doesn't notice in the moment, but it is an indication that that person is not welcome within whatever community that they're right. being unwelcomed from, and so so those those things are small and subtle, but over time they build up to a sense of this is not a place for me. I don't belong here. I am not. I am not recognized uh, as a member of this community. And so, um, so those things. But seventeen years ago, microaggressions was not a thing. Like no, that no, was agreed. not. It, not, yeah, it was yeah. not part of the larger conversation around this. And we're better off for having those conversations, right? Mm -hmm. We're better off for introducing the that you know that lens to view how we interact with one another and and the words we choose and how the words that we choose can impact other people that's i think that's important but i think work like this is the thing that helps set that up right i think yeah. you know it's like okay how do we recognize or not 
other people, other students, our colleagues, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And that it's subtle work, that it's not easy. It's, it's not just, um, how do we give people grades even, which right. that's a big one, but it's also, especially as you move into higher levels. Well, no, I think this is probably true all the way through. It just varies in how it, it manifests, right? Which is how do the people in power who are representatives of the community, which in in this case, in the case of the article, are actual scientists. But in the case that we're talking about, we're talking about science teachers, because science teachers stand in as the representative of the science community in schools. Um, how do they recognize or not the students in their classroom, right? And and that recognition and the way that they do that. Again, in the daily, you know, we talk about like individual talk moves that create norms, that create a sense of practice in a classroom. Well, those same things build when we're talking about somebody's identity. So every time you tell a kid they're wrong in a science classroom, you've taken a little chip off of their science identity. Um, Every time you humiliate them in, in a science class, whether it's about science or not, you've taken a chip off of their science identity and and it and it only takes so many chips before there's not much left and they're like well i can go somewhere else see i think the cool thing about this work though is that uh these 15 women of color who who you know they studied ultimately were successful in science in some capacity they still had they were still working in the science field but how they got there was you know either through you know support and recognition and hey i'm a sign or through disruption mm-hmm. or by taking some other way of saying okay yeah i'm i'm pursuing science but completely altruistically or for altruistic purposes yeah. outwardly right and so it's like how they you know renegotiated themselves in you know in relation to the community and I think that's what's what's interesting to me is like, and also how empowering it is that despite, you know, the community giving some sort of adverse, you know, recognition, right, or lack of recognition, lack of recognition yeah. you know, it could be either, right, adverse yeah. or, or, I mean, I guess lack would still be adverse, right, sure. yeah. um, that these folks still persisted, you know, persisted and still were successful to some degree, you know, yeah. and that's awesome. It it is awesome, but I but I think it's also I mean like you look at the second group, the altruistic science identities that you just mentioned, right? I mean, in many ways, this group is the most gendered of the group, the three right. groups, right? Because this is what happens to many women in science, which is they either I don't know, it's complicated to understand why it is that women tend to gravitate towards biology, whether that's the culture of the science itself that pushes them out, whether that's some interest because they're, you know, they have the ability to to have children that they're more interested in biology. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to speculate. There's probably tons of reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that they get sort of pushed into this as well, that altruistic, like medicine, like nursing, things that are sort of related to science, but have to do with care. Those generally get pushed into areas that women are allowed to be successful at. And I think right. that's, you know, that's a real challenge of that because, yeah, like you say, there there is the, the glass is half full version of that is, well, they were able to continue on into science in meaningful ways after they graduated. 
the glass is half empty there is where would those women have been right. if their interest in science hadn't been sort of shunted into biology or whatever health and care and could have been pushed into who knows even just molecular biology research would we have what would we have gained um that we may have lost because there was a sense that well you you can only be recognized as somebody who gives care and you're interested in science so we'll put you in this special little box where people who give care and science sort of overlap yeah that that's a good perspective and i think that's important because I, you know, while I'm looking at it and saying, okay, these are, you know, still people who were s- successful in science, they could have had different, you know, roles. They could have had different identities right. had they had more support and more recognition from the community in which they worked. And yeah. so that is an absolute perspective we need to share, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. The um. All right. So what else we what else you want to say about? That? I mean, I, it's a pretty powerful article, and yeah. I would recommend, even though it's. From 2007, there's still a lot to chew on now. Like there's still so much for us to to think about. And I think if you're not familiar with the article and you're like, or even if you're not familiar with science identity, I think thinking and you're like, how do I apply this? Like, what do I do? Like, I think that piece about recognition is the part that, you know, go off, you know, just like say tell someone they did a good job. Like, I mean, I know that sounds really like, you know, Pat as in like, Oh, like, uh, but like, just, you don't know the impact that even something like that has on some, somebody, right. Like being able to say, you know, that they've done something well and that you saw it, that you recognize the work that they did that. I mean, for, for those of us who are working in, you know, in universities or in research settings or with students, like, we, you know, you never know how far that can take somebody, how far that'll go with somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think it's, it's worth reminding ourselves as representatives of the science community in different contexts that we have power, right? That we have power to recognize others as being legitimate members of that community. And there's lots of ways to do that. But if we're self-consciously trying to say, Look, my main job, especially if I'm a K-12 teacher, is to make sure that as many kids as possible feel recognized as science people. Like, that's a really good goal. Like, to say, okay, like, I teach physics, but what I really do is I try to identify and cultivate students' sense of I am a science person and this is something that I like and am good at. Rather than seeing this as a weed out course, right? Uh, right. Where my job as a physicist or as a physics teacher or whatever is to weed out the people who aren't good at physics so they don't clog up the pipes in the undergraduate system. I want to get them weeded out so that they feel terrible about being a science person as early as possible so that I don't have to worry about them, you know, going off and messing things up in college. But it's not just science identities. I mean, sure. that's the that's the part of this article. But I mean, all identities are things that are constructed based on communities of practice and negotiations with other people, other members. So yeah. whatever community of practice you're in, it's going to rely on how folks recognize you or mm-hmm. how you recognize others. Yep. And so, and this is how like we have to really think about how we enculturate new neophytes and beginners and and others into our communities mm-hmm. and be intentional about that and be intentionally supportive of that 
you know? Yeah. Because if we if we just say, okay, well, you know, if they demonstrate competence and performance, then they're gonna be fine. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. And and competence and performance, what defines success in those areas is recognition. Right? Yes. Like, like what determines if I'm competent or not is if other people decide that yes. I'm competent. It's just it's not just my performance. It's not just my competence. It's how other people view those things. So I think that is important that, you know, you have to recognize that part of your job or part of your role in any community is you are always making decisions about who gets recognized and who doesn't. And by doing that, you are creating inclusive or exclusive environments. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, boy, I mean, it's a little daunting to think, because, you know, I mean, we're senior members of a community, right? And multiple Uh communities. And so we, by that, by the nature of the fact that we are senior members of those communities, we have more power to decide who gets in and who doesn't. Um, And it's not like we're a bouncer standing at the door, but we do have the power to make people feel like they are not welcome. And by doing so, exclude them or they self-exclude and say, this is not a place for me. I don't want to be here. Yeah. It's, it's daunting. It's also yeah. empower. It's also empowering. Yes. Yeah. And you know, this is. It is the case that this is the double-edged sword of being any kind of teacher, mm. no matter where oh you my, are. Oh my gosh! Yes. Right. I mean, that's it. It's like this is the nature of teaching: is you have both power and responsibility. You're like Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. I think that is the perfect place to leave this episode there and talk about is. joys. Anytime we can end with a, uh, a comic Spider. book reference, right. come on. We must come have on. succeeded. <laughs> yes. Especially one from, what, the 60s? That's even well, better. it's like every I know. I know. every it's single reincarnation. Every... <laughs> of I'm sure it's going to be in the, the, there's a Madam Web movie coming out. Yeah, like, I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be in there. You know, come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Right. Speaking of that, you got a joy? Oh, so many joys. Um. I, I'm going to do an odd one. All right. Oh, so you, right. you know, um, I, it's, it's Academy award season. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in my effort to see as many of the Academy award nominated movies, um, my wife and I saw poor things this weekend. Oh boy. Yep. Okay. So this is Emma mm-hmm. Stone and Willem w- Dafoe, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo. And I will say, um, it's a joy because it was really, there's not much cinema like this. Yeah. Okay. Because it's really uh, fantastical. It is set in time, but out of time. It has this really, you know, steampunk sort of industrial yeah. technological perspective. Um, and it is about experiencing life. Mm-hmm. And learning from life and just taking it all in, um, but it's a hard movie to rec- uh, to recommend to some others. Mm. Like it would yep. be, I'd be hard pressed to say yes, Scott McDonald, you need to see this because I feel like, well, it should be seen and it should be seen by lots of people. It will not be seen by lots of people, and not everybody should see this movie, right? right. I think, like, I think lots of people should see it, but not everyone's going to walk out of there. W- w- 
seeing this as a joy be feeling happy about it oh no yeah they're, they're gonna be a really um wait you know with it, what's interesting it is about a woman of science you know ultimately like like because you know it's I, I guess it's not too much to give away it's it's kind of like a frankenstein monster movie yeah emma stone frankenstein is, bride movie right right well, I mean, she's right of Frankenstein. So. Well, she is uh, a creation of a, a mad scientist who, you know, at the time is just like a physician, right? And the, like physician, right. mad scientist. What's the difference in like the yeah. mid eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah. Um, Depends on back, how you're recognized by other people. Right. <laughs> yes, I think looking <laughs> back now, we see this person as being a mad scientist, but you have a better understanding of how he gets there because you find a lot about it. Willem Dafoe's character and his backstory, um, but she's a she's a creation she's a creation of this but i think her quest for understanding the world is based on her experience like she wants to experience everything about the world yeah and that takes some dark turns but ultimately she realizes that uh it's the quest for knowledge that is the important part there you go so that's just there's a science uh there's a science um what am I looking for? Outcome? No, that's not yeah. the word. There, there's a really good quote that's in it. I was trying when it like, and I should look for it because it's like, we know something until we know something else, and then we know something else, and yeah. then we know that until we know something until else. Until we know something else. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. like she says that that's what you know the the doctor would always say. We know something until we know something new, and then yeah. we know that, and then yeah. you know, and I'm like, wow, that's really great. You know? Solid science stuff right Solid there. Solid science, yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm trying to think I'm going to, you know, I feel like I haven't been uh, consuming as much media recently. I had a, actually, I got a thing I, I will um, recommend and maybe I can recommend something specific within this. Yeah. I'll see if I can find the specific example of this that I'm up to right now, but um, something that I'm late to the game in that I have a lot of colleagues who are just obsessed with is jigsaw puzzles. So I don't know if you're a jigsaw puzzle person. I know you like games and such, but I don't know if, if, if uh, jigsaw puzzles is your thing, but um, a while back I got these um, they're called, I think they're called magic jigsaw puzzles. I'll see if I can find the, I will find, I won't see if I can find, I'll find the link to these, but um but they are jigsaw puzzles. But the interesting thing about them is they're they're divided up into three parts. And after you finish the main puzzle, there's like another little envelope of pieces and and a picture. And you dump those out and you open up the puzzle that you've just completed using the, you know, the fact that it's sort of sliced through and you insert a new piece of puzzle into the middle of it and it tells a new sort of story in the picture. So it's a, it's a, that's it's cool. A, it's a cool idea. Um, and so we, we have on our dining room table, my daughter over the holidays put this puzzle out and started working on it. And it's not an easy puzzle. It's, sure. it's a long time to work on it, but, um, but I'm very close to getting to the point where we can open the magic envelope that has the inside pieces. So we got three of these puzzles and this is the second one we've done. Um, but you know, they're great in the sense that they're just always out. And if you've got 10 minutes, you want to go sure. over. Usually if you, if you think you've got 10 minutes, it's going to be an hour later that you look up and you're like, Oh my God, I've been sitting in this puzzle for an hour. But, um, but jigsaw puzzles, if you haven't tried one recently, I'm not talking about like the ones you, 
from when you were a kid. Like jigsaw puzzles have evolved into this whole other thing. There's like three dimensional ones. There's all sorts right. of crazy versions of jigsaw. There's puzzles, competitive but... jigsaw oh, puzzling, God. like that. Yeah, everybody gets a box. Need. No, it's like a thing. Like I know, uh, but do we need to compete about everything? Can't we just enjoy? Making well, I think some. Puzzles? I think it's one of those human nature things that we like to compete, that we like to discover. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I will say, I, while I wouldn't consider myself a jigsaw person jigsaw puzzle person not sure i do but um when if i'm like a like at the beach or Mm. we're like rent a cabin for the weekend or something like that inevitably we will take uh a jigsaw puzzle or if we know we're going to be snowed in or or something where it's a good like i think during you know the pandemic we had done a a, you know a, a handful of puzzles only and we left them out because it was one of those things where it's a communal activity that people can do and talk and like you know do together and i think anytime you have those you know it's great and it also gives you know a a common goal a common you yeah. know achievement it's like whenever the puzzle's done there's always like yes we did it yeah no that, i agree it, it it's a communal activity that yeah that and everybody can participate to the degree that they want to so you can come over and make put one piece in and say okay i'm good yeah. or you can struggle with all of it for for ages um but uh, yeah i'll get uh, the i'll get the 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 people who made these puzzles are the same these magic puzzles are the same people who did cards against humanity if you know that group oh yeah 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 but, so i'll find i'll find the link to the puzzles but they were yeah they're fun and the idea that you get a little bonus prize once you finish the first one you get to create this sure, that's awesome pretty cool <clears throat> that's awesome all right so right. we covered a lot of territory this today. This is we great. Did. Yeah. Yeah. And we recognized so sh- each other. Shout out to Heidi and Angela. Thank you <laughs> yeah. so much for your hard work. If they're listening, I'm sure he- Heidi, I think Heidi has listened. Hasn't I? Yeah. I think she has listened and maybe I'll send this to her and say, well, just so you know, we spent the whole episode talking about your piece. So you and yeah. Angela, if you're feeling like you want to listen to people talk about your sure. Article, Right. Or, you know, they want to come on and just refute that we we did. Yeah. We missed it. We didn't get those, those two idiots. <laughs> yeah, Once these, again, they totally missed the point. Yeah. Well, wouldn't be well, the first time. Uh, it happens. It happens. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. 